inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Good morning. You are listening to Outlook on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western on this Monday morning. It's, um, we're airing this on the final day of November. And for our friends in the U.S., they were just excited. The news this week has been that the Macy's Day Parade still went ahead, even during COVID, and they have audio description now. So isn't that great? <laughs> Oh yeah, I, re- I read about that as well. That's pretty, yeah. pretty awesome. We're always talking about description, audio description on this show and how important yeah. that is. So that is great yeah. news. And we're also in the same room again. It's been a while since you and I have been uh, actually in person doing this show. Yeah, so that's kind of nice. Rocking the second wave here. Yeah. So <laughs> Still trying to stay safe. But our news is that uh, we got another guest today on Outlook and an interesting one at that. Um, we wanted to speak today to uh, Oriano Belusic. Uh, and uh, got lots to talk about with Ariana here, but um, let's start, I guess, you're in quarantine, right? Uh, you want to tell us a bit about where you are and why you're, are you in quarantine still or not? Uh, no, good afternoon, uh, Kerry. Good afternoon, Brian. Uh, <clears throat> no, not in quarantine anymore. As of uh, about uh, five days ago, uh, Sunday evening was the deadline. Okay. So uh, I, I just returned from uh, Europe, uh, Croatia, Europe, and uh, have to do my 14 days uh, in isolation, but we're past that now. Great. Great. Well, thanks for talking to us. Yeah. Um, if you want to tell us a bit about where you grew up, because we met you at the Canadian Federation of the Blind Conventions, uh, the last two we've attended, and uh, we're still getting to know you. And um, let us know maybe a bit about where you grew up and um, about blindness when you were growing up your experience oh wow let's do a quick uh, a quick first 20 or 30 years uh, <laughs> yeah exactly. I, uh, <laughs> so much to get to yeah I, uh, I grew up in what was uh, yugoslavia at the time uh, i was uh, born uh, uh, under yugoslavia in 1962 um, started uh, in a in a little place called istria it's a county in uh, in Cro- uh, croatia close to the italian border um, basically, uh, started out like a regular kid and, uh, at the age of seven and a half, I, uh, well, I started grade one in a regular, you know, public school, uh, at the time. And then, uh, <clears throat> in, uh, March of, uh, 1970, was it or 69? I don't even remember. Um, basically found a, uh, a leftover uh, hand grenade from the second world war. And uh, being a curious kid, I uh, took a rock and tried to open it up, see what was inside. And uh, I think that was the last thing I ever saw. So uh, <clears throat> got uh, lost an arm and uh, went blind at the same time. Um, and went to a school for the blind in Zagreb, Croatia, from 1970 until 73, when my parents decided to uh, immigrate to Canada. We came directly to Victoria, British Columbia, because my uncle sponsored us and uh, and uh, had a place uh, 
you know, for my dad to get settled initially. And then uh, my mom and my sister and I came uh, about nine months later and uh, uh, went to the School for the Blind, the Jericho Hill School uh, from 1970, I guess late 73 until 76 or thereabout, 77. Not sure exactly. Uh, <clears throat> I think I finished '77, and uh, so that was a was school. that a blind school in uh, out out west then at the time? Is it that's not still around yeah. anymore, right? It, it's not around anymore. It's uh, it it was a school. Uh, it was uh, in Vancouver, um, Jericho Hill. Uh, they had a facility there for the blind, and there was a facility up the hill for the deaf as well. Uh, I think the decision was made by the provincial government to integrate all the blind students uh, into the public school system. And I was one of the first to be integrated into the public school system here in Victoria as a blind student. It uh, went very well. <clears throat> so grades, uh, uh, what is that, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, I spent in, integrated in the public school system here in Victoria. and. Uh, um, the rest of my peers from the uh, Jericho Hill School also went uh, in the next year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, yeah, it was it was you know I, I consider it a very uh, broad education experience. You know, I started out in a school for the blind uh, in Zagreb. Then I uh, then I went to uh, a school for the blind for three years in Vancouver, and then uh, another four years or so, five in the uh, in, uh, public school system. And then mm-hmm. on to the University of Victoria, where I uh, <clears throat> managed to get a uh, science, uh, what do you call it, a Bachelor of Science in Economics. Studied computer science for the first couple of years, but uh, switched over to economics uh, for my uh, final degree. And at that time, uh, started looking at what sort of work I was going to be doing to make a bit of money. And uh, mm-hmm. I was always interested in technology, ham radio, and that sort of thing. So I started a small business with a couple of partners uh, called the Complete Computer Services Group. Uh, you know, one partner was into software development. Uh, uh, second partner was into teaching, uh, you know, new computer software packages to, to uh, people. And myself, I was working with the adaptive equipment for the uh, blind. Uh, that was uh, my end of it. We <clears throat> did that for the next few years. Uh, you know, in 1989, uh, I got married. Uh, and uh, uh, probably about four or five years after that, got into property development. Uh, you know, built our first house in 1994. And, uh, and it just carried on from there. And basically, my livelihood probably did better in the property development uh-huh. side of things than adaptive equipment. But uh, we, we had fun in the adaptive equipment sales and, uh, and uh, the property development is what uh, uh, worked out fairly well for us. Yeah. Wow, thanks for such a detailed history in such a short amount of time there that's that's so fascinating and if we could touch a little bit about the um, about your uh, development in the 90s and kind of how that all works because i i just find that kind of fascinating uh building in general and all this kind of stuff so maybe just talk briefly about that for our, our listeners 
Well, my uh, wife and I, Doris, uh, bought a old house uh, um, in 19, what was it, 1989. It, it was an extremely old house uh, built in 1911. It still had a wooden toilet, believe it or not. <clears throat> so it needed a lot of renovating. Um, but I was fortunate, uh, you know, being from uh, Croatia, where uh, there are many tradesmen from that part of the world uh, here in Victoria. So I had some good connections, um, you know, in Victoria, um, you know, through the family, people that could do drywalling, people that could do, uh, mm -hmm. you know, exterior siding, people that could do roofing, people that could do electrical, plumbing. So I basically figured out a way of uh, using them to update the old house that Doris and I bought. So we uh, had that thoroughly updated and made nice uh, and new, newish. And, uh, and then I got this uh, brilliant idea that since my property had access uh, from a secondary road, uh, you know, almost like a rear lane, <clears throat> I decided to uh, decided to duplex the property and build a uh, a three thousand square foot addition. It amounted to a whole new house on the sort of rear of the uh, of the existing house. Right. So we built a new house and uh, and sold the sold the front one, uh, the original old uh, that was now renovated, and uh, managed managed to pay off almost all of the mortgage for building the new one. So. So it was a brilliant move on our part. It worked out. Uh, you know, everything finished up good, and uh, and we kept going from there. Yeah, I mean, it's important, like you said, with your um, well-rounded experience in education growing up, and like we talk a lot on this show about schools for the blind, and we didn't really know a lot of what was going on out west growing up here in Ontario. Is so centered with um, the school for the blind in Brantford. It's all we know. And I, I used to hear there was one out east. But yeah, so, you, you know, it's great to get quite the array of experience there. So thanks for sharing that. When did you get involved with the Canadian Federation of the Blind? Maybe let us know a bit about what that's been for you and what you think. In the mid 90s, I, you know, learned through a TV program. Uh, there was a bit of trouble in fundraising in British Columbia. Uh, there was somebody complaining about a new organization that was doing fundraising <clears throat> on behalf of the blind. Because uh, uh, traditionally, there's only one organization in Canada, you know, that does fundraising for the blind, that's the CNIB. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there was a TV uh, bit on the evening news that uh, was mentioning this uh, new outfit. And that's where I learned about uh, Dr. Paul Gabius. And I said, hmm. I didn't know anything at all about this outfit, uh, so I decided to phone him up and uh, and inquire what it was all about and so on. And uh, everything I heard in ten or fifteen minutes uh, sounded very positive. You know, the outlook uh, and take on on blindness uh, was you know uh, hit a particular resonating uh, chord with me. You know, it was a positive way of looking at blindness. It was. It was, you know, promoting what blind people can do uh, in the way of professions and mm -hmm. skills and abilities, uh, uh, mobility, uh, travel, etc. So it, it just resonated with me, and I made a connection right there and then, and uh, basically stayed involved and in touch uh, ever since uh, uh, in different roles, uh, you know, with the organization. Right. 
And what do you think the value of it, of it is for people who don't know much about it uh, in Canada? Well, the value is tremendous, Kerry, uh, because uh, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, how would I put it? Uh, uh, there's a lot of thinking out there that, uh, you know, blindness uh, poses uh, insurmountable challenges, uh, you know, as far as people doing things and enjoying life and participating in the community. And, uh, uh, you know, so there's... Uh, there's there's great value in in spreading the message uh, and demonstrating to blind people that you know if you really really want to do something whether you know you want to become a lawyer or you want to become a property developer or you want to become a musician or you know a radio talk show host or w whatever it is you want to do if you put your mind to it uh, the fact that you're blind doesn't really uh, matter that much uh, mm. so you know it's it's the it's the thinking, the positive thinking that uh, I believe is important to push people into achieving, you know, and raising the bar uh, higher than they would otherwise. Uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, families that aren't exposed to successful <clears throat> blind people, you know, not, through no fault of their own, um, you know, don't see their, you know, uh, their child, whether it be a he or she blind, uh, as maybe having those opportunities, but uh, but the opportunities are out there. Uh, you just sort of have to open up your mind and uh, and expose people to uh, you know to whatever they excel in. Yeah, and you've really shown that just describing your your life experience up to this point and how full. I mean, that experience as a child sounds super traumatic, and I'm sure at the time, I mean, I can't imagine what you went through after that after that happened back in the 60s but it does seem like you know since then you didn't you didn't just give up you've lived such a full life and it really shows the the expectations that we're talking about that people do have these abilities and we it's it is a positive thinking and it's you know it's a it's a societal thing that's so systematic but it can be changed and uh you know it's a strange thing when you say it was very dramatic um it, it really it really wasn't you know i don't remember it uh, as such as a you know, seven and a half year old kid, uh, I think you sort of adapt and yep, right. kids are very of, adaptable. Yeah. And, and take to anything Resilient. that comes your way. Yeah. And almost anything, you know, I achieved after that, people, you know, always, you know, said, Oh, wow, you know, you can do that. Oh, wow, you yeah. can do that. Oh, wow, you know, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, which, you know, they shouldn't do because it's really nothing miraculous. But yeah, right. But you know, they, they, they don't expect much out of someone who's basically uh you know blind and uh and but in my mind uh, there was no reason why i couldn't right. you know hammer hammer nails or i couldn't uh you know cut wood or i couldn't uh drill something if i had to uh not that that's what i do in my building projects you know i i hire people to do all of those sort of hands-on things but right. uh but i certainly have the organizational skills to manage uh you know, trades and, and, and many blind people don't realize that, you know, what great managers they are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in order to survive uh, and to function well as a blind person, we have to be really good organizers, you know, plan when to head out next week to, you know, do grocery shopping or appointments and, you know, maybe get two or three things done on the same uh, outing. So all these organizational skills, believe it or not, can really make a blind person a pretty darn good, uh, you know, developer, in my case. 
Right. Well, like you said, you don't do all the work now, you delegate, but um, you can do a lot of those jobs and you have. And it's, I guess for me, it's always, I use the example of, I read a lot where family and even new blind people think, oh, I can't possibly cut vegetables. I need safety scissors or some, some ridiculous thing like that. And, and for blind people who've been blind all their lives, cutting something, it's no big deal. We don't cut our finger off every time we try. It's not You're so scary. You're going a little bit. You're going a little bit out of my field when it comes to cutting vegetables, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, cutting whatever it might be. <laughs> that's all. That's generally what I cut. I that's mean, what we cut. The idea of building something seems interesting to me, and it's actually something I would I would like to learn more about and try. But I've never really done that myself. But I do. I do actually. I do consider myself to be a semi decent cook, and I do actually do a lot of home cooking here. So. Yeah, you cut your own oh, vegetables. Lots of, lots of vegetables get cut here. So I know I know many, many blind people that just love uh, love cooking and love doing exactly that. I was just yep. just making more of a joke. Out <laughs> yeah, of it. yeah, absolutely. Good it's good to, good to keep things light sometimes too on this show. I have, a, I have a very good cook in the house, so I, I get to <laughs> yeah. be uh, a little, so you don't a little bit lazy, lazy on that front. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Great. No, thanks for telling us that so far. And uh yeah, getting your thoughts on your childhood instead of us just projecting what it might have been like, because um, we don't know. But um, yeah, so I guess we wanted to talk specifically about what's been in the news lately. But um, I guess I wanted to mention the CFB first and the work you've done, because when we got involved, Brian and I, in the last couple of years, we've just been involved with advocacy as adults in the last couple of years here and so much. And, and we didn't, you know, you never really want think about how much of it comes down to um, filing a complaint like you did that we want to get to talking to. So, um, you know, not everybody likes that sort of thing, but you showed us. Uh, no, nobody. Yeah. yeah I'm sure not like, do you like it either? Either, per se, but. Do you like it either? Is that how you want to be spending your days? I doubt it, but. Um, no, no, no. I've been involved in the advocacy part. That's, uh, you know, that's the distinguishing sort of aspect of, uh, right. of Canadian, Canadian Federation of the Blind and let's say the, uh, you know, Canadian National Institute for the Blind. You know, one is more of a service organization, uh, whereas the Canadian Federation of the Blind is more of a advocacy uh, consumer, uh, you know, based organization. And, and, and really, you know, we do things uh, that should improve the lives of the blind, uh, you know, in, in the community. And, and one of those things is the ability to travel around without too many impediments. Uh, right. You know, so we've worked on advocacy projects involving annunciation, uh, you know, talking annunciation on buses. So people know, you know, what streets to get off at, uh, etc. Mm -hmm. You know, everything from curb cuts, uh, you know, so they can be detected. Uh, and, uh, you know, most recently, the uh, bike lanes, uh, the separated bike lanes uh, here in Victoria, which are starting to pop up all over the world, really, uh, in the last 10 years. And uh, other, you know, advocacy efforts, you know, promoting Braille. Uh, so there's, there's many, many guide things. That, yeah, guide dogs, guide dogs. Uh, accessibility to, you know, taxis. Uh, uh, so guide dog legislation. There, there's a need to advocate uh, or to speak up, you know, from a blind person's perspective in all these areas. And uh, unfortunately, changes are being made, uh, you know, in, in the 21st century that uh, are not always in the best interest of a blind, uh, you know, traveler. So, uh, so somebody has to, you know, stand up and, 
and try to improve the situation. Yeah, I mean, city design is a big thing. And like you've pointed out in, in the articles and things is that uh, blind people rely on public transportation. So, you know, we don't have the option of driving a car or a bike, depending on whether we care about the environment or not. We are walking and taking public transit um, to get where we need to go. So, Oh, very true. Very true. And, and you know what, we're not... We're not opposed to the healthy living, the cycling, you know, we're all for it. Uh, I think it's a great uh, thing to promote, but it should never be at the expense of, a, um, of another user group like the blind in the community, like setting our access to public transit backwards as far as safety is concerned is not the way to go in order to promote uh, trouble-free cycling. Uh, you know, it's, it was just an oversight uh, with serious consequences for the blind. Uh, to, to maybe explain the situation a little a little better, uh, Carrie and Brian, what they've done here in Victoria is they've uh, created a separated a hardscape, in other words, uh, a raised platform by about five or six inches that's uh, out from the sidewalk about uh, 10 feet in the roadway. And uh, the cyclists are free to go between this raised platform where there's a bus shelter and a wait, waiting area for uh, mounting and dismounting a bus. Um, you know, and then you have to cross over this uh, bike lane in order to get to the uh, traditional sidewalk. So, mm -hmm. so the cycling, cyclists being quiet, uh, creates a problem for a blind person crossing this uh, 10 foot wide uh, um, bike uh, bike lane, we call it. Uh, it's got bi-directional travel with bikes. Uh, now they have electric bikes on it, which are heavier and mm. more yeah, dangerous. Worse, yeah. should, should there be a conflict? Uh, the thing is, you just don't hear them, right? It doesn't matter how good of a blind traveler you are with a cane or a guide dog. Yeah. It came up during uh, recently with, with silent these new electron electric cars and stuff like that where they're more silent and i think there was some this discussion i think it maybe came into effect where they have to have a certain noise that they make so that people can detect them and that's what i kind of compare that to is these these new transportations are bikes are obviously not a new one but it's again helping with fossil fuels and the environment and it's a it is a good thing to have um, but it's same with these elect electric cars they're good for the environment but we still have to make sure that they're inclusive and and oh, allowing yeah. no, uh, I <clears throat> I actually love these new cars, you know, these new Priuses and so on, and they are quite silent, uh, especially in parking lots and so on. And, but this is where the beeper or a little, bit of, a little bit of ambient noise or detectable noise is important from the vehicle because, you know, even in a parking lot, uh, it's, it's probably even more dangerous and, and useful in a parking lot because there may be a need for a blind person to be you know, walking through a parking lot to get to a front door of a store or something. Right, I so walk through important. parking lots a lot. <laughs> yeah, so it's important to know that there's a moving, you know, vehicle. Uh, you know, you might be in the in the car's blind spot. You know, the car may be backing up uh, or something like that. And if it's totally silent and moving, it uh, makes it pretty awkward for you as a blind person to participate in, in, in your own safety. <clears throat> so this is what we're asking for is... Uh, we, we understand that the driver or the bike rider, you know, does his or her best to avoid accidents. Uh, but we would like to be able to play our part in, in, in participating in, in the safety as well. And the only way we can do that is if we can hear uh, that they're moving or we can hear them. Uh, 
Because, uh, you know, a lot of accidents in the world happen because, or not happen, they're avoided because one out of the two parties, uh, it, you know, is paying attention and manages to avoid a, a problem. Mm. But when you remove that option from one of the parties, yeah. then the entire accident happening or not depends on only one party paying attention. Yeah. Right. It should be both. Both people should have that. that uh, should have the ability, ability to, to pay to attention. Pay and attention. Have a, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Right. Because the answer is not always when you get in an accident, blind person with a bike. Oh, that poor blind person, that evil bike rider. That's not what we're saying at all. But if one no, of us no. doesn't see the bike coming or hear it, then... You know, we can't both, well, who was responsible for that? Who might not have been paying attention, put, you know, know, on both people. Or the bike rider, you know, the bike rider for a, you know, flashing moment takes a look at a, you know, at a a phone and just to see who sent them a message. And next thing you know, it didn't notice the blind person stepping out or the sighted person stepping out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there has to be an opportunity for that other person to, you know, to be able to react, uh, should the other person for that split moment not be paying attention. Mm. Absolutely. So maybe if, if you could go back to the, a little bit of the history of the, the bike claim case, because this is, a, this is the thing that's been in the news recently. CBC did a great article on this, and there were also quite a few comments on it, which was nice to see. Most of the, most of the comments, I think, were positive. Uh, which is great, obviously. And uh, yeah, just maybe just go back a little bit into the history of how this case came about originally and just an overview of, of uh, how, how sure. everything's gone. <clears throat> sure. Well, you know, Victoria being a West Coast city, uh, you know, along with Portland, Oregon, and, uh, you know, many new things happen on the West Coast. Uh, Victoria is, you know, known as a garden city. Uh, you know, we have quite a base of... Uh, people that, you know, cycle here, I believe, in Victoria. And at the moment, we have a council that is uh, quite uh, pro-cycling. And, uh, and you know, they, they really wanted to develop and implement this uh, cycling uh, infrastructure that connects cycling lanes in Victoria with, you know, the Galloping Goose Trail, which now allows cycling and you know, all for a better living and, uh, you know, less cars on the road. Uh, so there are a lot of goals. Um, and in order to get more people cycling, they wanted to create these protected bike lanes. And by, by what I mean by protected, they have this uh, hardscape separation from the main road where the cars uh, go back and forth to the cycling. So the cyclists really have their own little lane, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that they can go back and forth on. And the idea was they would get more younger people and older people and people that are not as confident on bikes to uh, to ride back and forth. Right, because before there there are bike lanes I've heard that are just are painted on the street, and those 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 would help. But at the same time, they're still not protected from traffic as as well, obviously, from these actual protected bike lanes. So. I don't know. Right. Yeah, that's You're very right. You know, there are many variations of bike lanes. You know, there are painted bike lanes, there are narrow bike lanes, there are, you know, wide bike lanes. Uh uh so there's all kinds of bike lanes and and not all of them, you know, use these uh, floating islands for bus stops. Uh you can put bike lanes on a side of a road where there are no bus stops. Uh so avoiding the conflict uh, 
point uh, with bus riders. Mm-hmm. You could uh, you could make it so that the buses could come into the bike lane. If there is no hardscape, the bus can actually come in to the curbside, traditional curbside, mm-hmm. pick up people and drop them off. And what it would mean is that the bikes would have to stop uh, and wait for the bus to clear that area before they could carry on. <clears throat> you know, there's different kinds of implementations. Uh, these ones just uh, pose the real problem, uh, you know, for, for blind people. And uh, one of the measures uh, they're taking to, uh, to try to improve the situation now that the problem has been created is to install audible uh, flashing lights. So in other words, there's, there's a light, when you push a button on a pole, there's a yellow light that flashes, and there's a accompanying beeper, audio beeper that goes, that tells a blind person that there's a light flashing. We're going to take a quick break. We're speaking with Oriano Belusic, and we'll be right back to discuss the bike lane case here today on Outlook. Welcome back to Outlook on 94.9 Radio Western this morning. We have been talking with Oriano Belusic. He's out in uh, Victoria, um, British Columbia. And we're talking now about a case that's been on the CBC recently. But um, you were just telling us about um, what these... Yeah, I mean, I hadn't heard of the term floating... <laughs> yeah, floating bus stop, and you've you've touched on you what those are already. That, but yeah. just that's a term that it. Um, they're, they're not really they're not really floating. There's no water involved. Uh, <laughs> right. they're, just, uh, they're just out. Uh, they're out from the traditional sidewalk about ten feet, and they're built built up about you know about uh, five or six inches. See how how I can kind of compare those because I haven't had too much experience. I can get in a little a little bit at some point in this episode if there's time. But um, when I was living in Toronto, they have streetcars there, which is kind of the same idea. There's a floating platform, I guess you'd call it, or floating bus or stop in the middle. But generally, those were right at the corner. So there would be a traffic light there, right? So, and that's that's also a little different um, because... Yeah, these are all mid-block. Right. You know, they're not, they're not at an intersection. That's another or, big point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's hard to explain it to people um, who haven't heard these terms and, and can't quite picture it um, in the, the city design. And since it doesn't affect them directly, they they don't really quite know what it's what we're, what it's all about. But yeah, and we were <laughs> we were kind of getting into before the break a, a couple of the uh, solutions or quote unquote solutions that were met were discussed. And you were talking about about these these lights. So if you want to kind of go back to that briefly and and sum that up uh, for our listeners. Sure thing. Yeah, what uh, what the uh, BC Human Rights Tribunal has <clears throat> sort of accepted uh, in their ruling, uh, unfortunately, and uh, and what the city is proposing and doing is they're installing uh, on a pole um, a uh, flashing yellow light, and there's an audible beeper that goes off at the same time as the light is flashing, and <clears throat> we have a problem with that because. It could give some blind people a false sense of security. You know, sometimes you think that when a beeper is going, it must be safe to cross or it might be safe to cross. Uh, in this case, it really doesn't mean anything very much because the cyclists don't behave any differently and you still can't hear whether they've stopped or not. Um, so so it's, it, it's, it's a bit of a... You know, if you're if you're a, a very wise uh, blind traveler, you you would 
know that it doesn't mean much and you still have to uh, do something like maybe wait for uh, some human being to let you know that it is safe or, or wait for a cyclist or stick your cane, uh, you know, way out and hold it for a few seconds and then go. I, I don't know what different people do, but, but the, the fact that the audio beeper is going doesn't really ensure safety by any means. It just uh, is telling you that the light is flashing. And what we've noticed and videotaped is that the cyclists don't behave any differently when the light's flashing uh, to when it isn't. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a freeway for cyclists and they treat it as such. Uh, they really don't want to stop their momentum. You know, mm -hmm. it means stopping a bike and start and then starting up again. So it's more effort. Mm -hmm. So we've seen them, you know, ride around people. If somebody happens to be crossing, they'll, they'd rather go around that person and maintain their momentum than, than stop, uh, you know. So it, it's just not working the way it was envisioned to work. You know, people think that uh, when a light is flashing, you know, the yield uh, should uh, indicate, well, you know, stop riding your bike and let people cross so they can get on the bus. And But it's just not working that way in practice. And uh yeah, I mean, it's That's definitely right. not, it's not great to trust and even at something as controlled as an intersection with a stoplight, you know, those aren't always reliable. And it's, it's nice that they add those beeps in to some degree at an intersection. But even there, I'm still really focusing on listening to the traffic. I don't just hear the beep and be like, okay, it's definitely safe. I, mm -hmm. I listen to my parallel yeah. traffic beside me and make there's sure that a, it's, it's going through. There's a bit, yeah, you're right, Brian. There's a bit of a difference in that the beepers at intersections, uh, correspond to a red light and a green light. And again, you don't right. trust them 100%. You still have to listen to the traffic flow. But you always have, you know, the parallel traffic or the perpendicular traffic noise to use as uh, <clears throat> additional information. You know, the, the environmental noise is really messed up on these uh, bike lane crossings because on the main road part, the traffic, regular traffic continues to make noise and move. There's nothing stopping them there. So you, you, you have this ambient noise level obscuring, you know, sound on, on the bike lane. And even if it wasn't, it would still be very hard to hear bikes. Uh, you know, if you're blind, uh, the, the time you hear a bike is when it's, when it's too late. Right. When I stand there and wait to cross, the only bikes I hear are the ones that pass me. I never hear the ones that are coming. <laughs> I can yeah. just, I can just yeah, hear them. Yeah, when they're going the really they fast and zipping by, you hear that, but when they're... Well, you can hear them, but they've already yeah. passed. It's already passed, yeah. You don't you hear know, before. So it's, uh, so it's um, you're playing Russian roulette, basically, right. in crossing these things, and... Uh, we're hoping that the engineers come up with a better, safer solution for uh, for people uh, that have vision, that, you know, challenges uh, blind people like myself uh, crossing and using uh, public transit. And you're right; we don't, you know, we don't use uh, cars and bikes uh, ourselves, so we do depend on uh, on public transit buses uh, to get around. For sure. So maybe tell us a bit about what is it like for people like me who are new to it and who don't know kind of what, how long was this process from when you filed this complaint and you had this issue um, to where we are now? Um, well, it's, it, quite an, it's quite an onerous, a lot yeah. of people don't do this sort of work because it is a bit of an onerous process. Yeah. <clears throat> we, uh, you know, of course we wrote letters, uh, you know, and contacted counselors and the mayor 
you know, prior to filing a complaint. Uh, but in 2018, uh, sort of towards the end of the summer, we finally uh, exhausted all the options and, and filed a human rights complaint. And then the process just starts, uh, the paperwork process starts, uh, you know, the parties have to submit, you know, in writing their, uh, <clears throat> you know, their case, uh, their uh, witnesses, uh, their, uh, you know, the process is quite onerous and, and goes over months and months and months and years. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so it's, uh, <laughs> there's uh, there's uh, a lot of good reasons why most people wouldn't want to bother, but uh, but it's a problem that's going to grow, you know, yeah. throughout the world. And uh, we've had uh, calls of support from uh, you know from uh, different part different countries, uh, including countries where they say that these bike lanes are superb, like Holland, uh, mm. you know, and Ireland, uh, Britain. Um, you know, if you listen to the cycling community, there's nothing but how great they're all working. Yeah. But when you hear the blind folks from those areas, uh, they're having the same challenges and problems and dangers that we are. Yeah. And, and all you kind of get f- uh, is sort of the comment, like it was said that the the um, the city acted in good faith. So when you hear comments like that, how do you sort of take those sort of comments at all? It's very uh, discouraging, uh, you know, because we're we're members uh, of the community, and uh, you know, when you really think about it, uh, what it comes down to is they haven't taken into account, you know, the safety of a certain group of people in their community, and uh, with you know, universal design, uh, you know, getting more and more known around the world. Uh, you know, you're supposed to not set accessibility back for any group of people, you know, when you're making changes and, and improving it for others. So clearly they're failing, you know, on, on, on that score. Uh, they're, uh, they're building infrastructure uh, quickly. They're, uh, they're, you know, they're, their effort to improve the cycling network uh, somehow allows them or or I'm not sure they want to hear about, uh, you know, the awkward uh, challenges and, and dangers that their design is going to pose to a group, uh, like a, a group of blind people. So it becomes awkward. Uh, you know, it, it certainly doesn't feel, you know, very good uh, for a blind person to to sort of hear that, they're following, you know, good best practices when you know that, you know, you are now not able to use public transit the way you used to mm-hmm. uh, in, in the city. Uh, we all think that things are always improving for the better, uh, and they should be if people follow, you know, certain design, basic design principles of universal access, but, but uh, they're not. And, um, you know, unfortunately, blind people have to be vigilant and and you know, get involved in their communities uh, and see if uh, something that is being proposed is going to you know impact their safety or not. In this case, it certainly does. And and even the Human Rights Tribunal, mm-hmm. you know, um, accepted uh, a solution so far that is no solution at all, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is a problem. There's definitely a problem out there, and uh, it'll take time to fix. 
you know, and, and blind folks will have to be persistent in uh, speaking up and, uh, and getting it dealt with down the road. Well, like you say, it is such a universal thing and it's happening everywhere. And even here in London, Ontario, it's um, I haven't honestly been doing tons of traveling, especially downtown with COVID and everything going on. But last year I worked briefly at the, the Grand Theatre here and downtown the one day I got off the bus on King Street and I thought I was on the sidewalk and I turned right off after I got off the bus and started walking. And then I came to an end and I was kind of like, where am I? And it turned out they had installed one of these bike lanes on on King Street here. Um, and it just goes to show that it's happening everywhere. And, you know, from there, it's um, I've heard now that they're they're moving these to Dundas and, and all this kind of stuff. But it's it's yeah, it's a scary thing to, to what think you about. just mentioned. What you just mentioned, you know, has been experienced in Victoria here. We've had people that, you know, are newcomers to the area. And, you know, that happens, you know, blind people do travel. Mm -hmm. um, and they basically, when you get off the bus, uh, you, you know, in most cities around the world, you used to be able to start walking uh, forwards or backwards, uh, you know, and you're on a sidewalk. That's what you would expect. But when you do that on these, uh, what we call uh, islands, you encounter a bunch of uh, bike uh, hardware, you know, where you can tie your bike up and and then you just fall off into the middle of the road once you get off this uh, raised uh, platform. So yeah. you don't realize that you're, you know, you're 10 feet away from a boulevard and from a traditional sidewalk. Uh, you know, and it's, we've had a lady fall into the street, uh, you know, because it was uh, an unexpected, non-intuitive. You know, one of the principles of universal design, it means that the design needs to be intuitive. Mm. You know, people should automatically try to make sense out of it. Uh, and, and these things are not that way for a blind, uh, you know, bus rider. You, you, you know, you basically will, uh, will encounter obstacles that uh, are not intuitive. Uh, you, you know, you're not on a traditional sidewalk uh, when you start walking uh, and getting off the bus. Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're on, a, on a platform that is separate from the main sidewalk and and you, you'll have to somehow figure out or somebody will tell, have to tell you that, you know, the, the sidewalk is, uh, you know, 15 feet further, uh, further over. And that's in my situation. That's what happened. I ended up having to, to ask someone when I was someone finally came along, kind of like, where am I? And then they did help me. But that's that's no solution. I mean, of course, we can ask for help, but we want to be able to do these things with on our own independently and not be asking. And again, you're also just putting your life in someone else's hands if you're trusting someone else so it's it's just yeah it's uh and and not everybody out there you know is is great at explaining yeah the situation you're in uh, you For know sure. some people are very good at it some people are not and, and i'm not saying they should be or shouldn't be but uh, mm. but if the design is intuitive there is no need for depending on that uh, extra layer of of help that may or may not be there yeah and and honestly there are a lot of blind people who just are too afraid to go out. They want to go somewhere. Most people would go go out and find a way and get there. But a lot of people let these fears of what might be waiting out there that some city designer didn't think of that, that could happen to them. And, and a lot of blind people still won't let that hold them back, but some will and far too many will. And so that's why I'm glad we can talk about it on Outlook today for sure because I know the idea can scare a lot of people sighted and blind, but 
that's why we need to talk about it and be open about what it is and what it means. Yes, uh, you know, and this kind of thing is happening more and more. So it's not, so we're not talking about a problem that's uh, on its way out. I think we're talking about a problem that's on its way in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that's the way it's looking. And that's why it's, you got to, you got to start somewhere. And it's a, it's, it's so, it's so uh, inspiring to see you taking this on out there. And it makes me feel bad here in London. It's like, I didn't even know this bike lane was coming. And I just got off the bus that one day. And I was like, oh, I didn't know they were installing these. And now it got me thinking, no. you know, I should have done this and that. But it's one of those things you can't keep well, up on way- everything. And it's. The way these things sneak up on us and the way it snuck up on us a little bit in Victoria is that the initial public house openings and consultations were targeting, you know, the bike user crowd, right? You know, we're, we're doing an open house uh, consultation on, on a bike lane. You know, typically, um, if you're a blind person, it wouldn't really get your interest up because we're not cyclists and we're, you know, we're not even mm. car riders. So there's nothing really that would get me out to that public, uh, you know, forum mm. to discuss it. Uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't expect uh, if somebody is building something in my city, I wouldn't expect them to take away, you know, some accessibility uh, that I already have. You know, so there's no real good there's no real good reason for me to be interested in a bike lane, uh, you know, to go out and listen to what's going to happen. Uh, of course, when you learn that uh, they've done something that sets your accessibility backwards and create creates a danger for you in using public transit, then of course you have to, you know, start figuring out how to rectify it or you know file a complaint about it or improve it or do something. But but this is how it sneaks up on us because it's really not something that typically would get a blind person's interest. Uh, you know, if they're building. Uh, you know, a, a, a new, uh, you know, road for such and such riders. Uh, you know, if I'm not involved in that, I, I don't tend to get all interested about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I mean, that's what I love about the Canadian Federation of the Blind from when we've just recently discovered it here is that, um, you know, you might feel all alone if you came upon that uh, and you might not know that someone out across the country has filed a complaint with the BC uh, Tribunal for Human Rights. And now that I'm involved and I've heard what you guys have done, it, you know, it just lets me know the, the options out there and the possibilities and that I'm not alone in whatever might come, that I can reach out. And there's probably somebody in, in this, the CFB who's come up against something. So, Right, right. And just to sum up the uh, case a little bit, uh, the, the final decision... Um, basically found that uh, we are being discriminated against. Uh, the design does discriminate uh, against uh, blind folks using public transit. Uh, however, there's a problem in the ruling uh, that also says that these audio beepers that accompany the flashing light are at present an acceptable solution, but it does leave the door open for, uh, because I think the tribunal member realizes that it's really not a safe solution uh, mm-hmm. uh, does leave the door open for if other engineering um, solutions become available that they should be you know implemented and and checked into um, and there's also a remedy section of the case that's still to be scheduled and come in the new year uh, where hopefully we can address 
the serious deficit of this ruling, which is, uh, uh, you know, the lack of safety uh, still in, in using public transit and the fact that these audibles are not sufficient to, uh, you know, to, to uh, solve the problem. So uh, we're hoping to still make some improvements. Uh, we feel that there may be an option to do that. And uh, and we're looking forward to uh, working on it uh, uh, from that point on. Uh, we simply cannot accept, you know, the situation as it is right now. Uh, you know, the audio beepers accompanying the flashing light is just not going to, you know, suffice uh, because we know already that uh, it's still dangerous, even with those installed, <clears throat> you know, on, on, on War Street, uh, which is uh, already equipped with the audio beeper and the flashing light. We had a, a young blind fellow with his white cane. Uh, the white cane got all mangled up by a cyclist uh, mm -hmm. not long ago. So we still we know that it's not working, but uh, uh, it's it's work in progress. Uh. Yeah, and I was just also curious if if you've thought at all about cert, um, some sort of solutions that that could work um, in in post obviously these these flashing lights. What sort of do you have any ideas of a solution that they could do this to make it safe for both the bikers and, obviously, uh, accessibility and blind travelers? Uh, yes, uh, there are solutions. I'm not an engineer, you know, a traffic engineer or anything like that. But, uh, but you know, solutions such as, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's not very frequently that, you know, blind or visually impaired people cross over these lanes. So a, uh, a mechanical arm, uh, you know, that comes down and blocks the uh, cyclist, uh, you know, uh, while a blind person is crossing and then goes up uh, <clears throat> automatically, you know, after a minute or, or less, you know, could be one solution. Another solution could be, uh, you know, some sort of uh, train crossing type uh, where there's an audio alarm that only goes off when there's cycling activity, mm -hmm. you know, 20 or 30 feet prior to the crossing and, and, and after the crossing. So the audio would indicate to a blind person that there's a cyclist in the area. So as, if there's no audio ringing going on, it would mean that there is no cyclist, uh, you know, in that zone. And, you know, you at least have a chance to be seen, you know, starting to cross. And because uh, what we're trying to avoid <clears throat> is a blind person stepping out Basically, you know, when, when the cyclist is literally, you know, a meter or two away, so the cyclist wouldn't have a chance to respond and the blind person wouldn't have a chance to respond. Uh, so if there's some sort of an alarm, you know, going off while a, you know, while a bike is going through, uh, it, would, it would at least alert the blind person that there is some activity on the bike lane and maybe not to start walking across yet. So there, there are, yeah. you know, there are, there are things we can think about, uh, but this is just off the top of my head. And, you know, I'm sure, of course, another solution would be just to take 100 feet of the hardscape out yeah. and allow the buses to come in to the traditional sidewalk. And, you know, all it would mean is that the cyclists who have vision to see the bus would be inconvenienced a little bit and stop for the bus uh, while the bus was picking up uh, and dropping off and you know, it's the rest of the time, the bikes would have free use of the, uh, of the you know, of the lane. Uh, so yeah. I don't think it would be a big thing to ask, actually, but... Uh, right, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, obviously, the, the painted bike lanes, to my 
understanding aren't aren't the safest because yeah the bikers are very close to the traffic and there's no protection there in that sense but the idea of like you say just taking a little bit of the barrier out by the bus where the bus would stop and and then for the rest of their ride they're all good so yeah like you say there yeah, and there's yeah. so many more op- solutions probably out there that you know i'm not an engineer oh, obviously are. either yeah. so i'm sure if if heads yeah. get together and really think about this stuff there's there's definitely a lot of ways they could get around this but they just haven't it didn't consider it and now it's well, where, talked about. where there's a will, there's a way. And if you want to, you will, tr- you know, you'll find a solution. If, so we, we got to start with making sure that people know that this is an issue, but it does feel empowering to come to the table with some ideas. It's just that, uh, yeah, it's, we got to get people it, to it listen be, first. It, you know, after being dealt with the way we have been by the city planners, <clears throat> it would be very welcoming if they actually came to the table with a solution that was, uh, you know, a, a definite, safer, you know, which uh, is their job. solution. Yeah, which is really what their job is if they're working on, on behalf of, every, you know, every member of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once they know that what they've done isn't working, it's, it's not good enough that, you know, they pretend that they've done something and that is working. You know, they actually need to come to the table with an improvement that that actually does make it safer for blind people to use public transit. Uh, so that, that's what we're kind of looking for and hoping for. Uh, up to now, it hasn't looked good. But you know, there's always uh, there's always hope that things will get better. Yeah, how do you keep that hope? Or what would you what would you call it that you know, you've cultivated all uh, these years? I don't know, you keep going. So what would you say? Yeah, to me, it's natural, you know, I think, yeah, <clears throat> I, it just doesn't make sense to me that somebody would want to set back the safety of blind people in the community. Yeah. So if there was a safer, you know, uh, an option that would uh, allow blind people to use uh, public transit safely, I just can't figure out a reason why that wouldn't be pursued and implemented ASAP, you know, in a community. Uh, I know that it just makes sense to me to, you know, if I was a planner and, and, and you know, and a city councilor that I would want to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's logical to me. Yeah, and again, it's like, we we're not we're not trying to and put any sort of hierarchy of this and that. We're trying to make things accessible for everyone, but it's um it's, it's one of those things again where we still feel like it's a, it's an afterthought that about yeah. the blind community traveling independently and all this like these things aren't being considered at the table from the from the get- beginning of these these developments and and that needs to change obviously it it, it does and it's almost <clears throat> a little bit inexplicable why it's not being considered because many of these uh, you know newer younger you know city planners engineers uh, you know are required to take courses uh, mm-hmm. you know at their education level in universal accessibility and, 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 and so on. So, you know, it's not as if they're hearing about people in wheelchairs or people that are blind traveling with canes or a guide dog. I don't think they're hearing about these people for the first time, you know, as part of their training curriculum to know about these things. So it, it, is, it is surprising and, and shocking that, you know, we're still running into these kind of problems, but that's the way it is. That's the way it is, right? Yeah, so we're getting down to the the last couple minutes of the uh, of the show. Thanks again so much, Oriano Belusic, for coming on today on Outlook. We really appreciate it, and uh, we'll definitely keep 
keep our listeners up to speed on what's going on with with this case and and hopefully things do get better and we're gonna keep keep working on things i don't know if there's anywhere specifically you want to promote or for people to go online to read yeah, up, obviously. Where they, would you suggest people who are hearing this who might want to get more involved or just become more aware or, you know, whatever? What do you think people should be oh, doing? They can, they can always uh, check our uh, <clears throat> website, Carrie and, and Brian, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, cfb.ca. <clears throat> um, CFB for Canadian Federation of the Blind, so cfb.ca. Right. And there's usually a link from there that they could uh, either contact us with suggestions, solutions. We've heard uh, solutions from the public, believe it or not. There are many people that wish us well and, uh, and phone in with solutions, uh, you know, to the bike lane issue. So that's much appreciated. And, uh, and uh, you know, we, I- I'm certain that we're going to have a favorable outcome. It'll take a bit of work, but there will be a favorable outcome uh, down the road. Right, I believe I believe that. I think so too. It's uh, on work in progress, but it uh, it it's definitely worth it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, and we'll have you back again someday, hopefully, with a positive update on this case. And uh, thanks again. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Carrie. Find us on Twitter at Outlook CFB and on Facebook facebook.com slash outlook on radio western